everything is still evolving. We're on the front edge of this. This is only going to grow. So that's why this land is going to be a great investment because it's not going anywhere. Pandora's box is open. The need is there, affordable housing. You may not be able to be the first one out of the gate, but it's a good investment. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. We are here today with Michael Dawkins. Michael is a retired captain in a fire marshal's office who is now a land investor and developer. And he made that transition earlier this year. Michael, welcome to the show. Looking forward to our conversation. So you made a big transition there out of a lifelong W-2 job into a little more uncertain world. Tell me a little bit more about your background and your history and how you got to this point. Well, my formal training actually is education and social work, but I didn't last too long in that world. So I became a firefighter in 95 and then worked in Portland Fire and Rescue and then retired from the fire marshal's office, as you said, in February. So. It was a huge transition coming from being a civil servant to being an entrepreneur and pursuing my real estate dreams. So was real estate something you had always kind of dabbled in or was it brand new, something you'd wanted to do? You know, it was, uh, I kind of fell into it with my family and 2008 happened. And so then I decided to go on my own about seven years ago and started investing in some duplex and then into some land and homes where I could actually develop. So you were buying land to build homes on them? Absolutely. First, my strategy was, is you find an asset that is stabilized. So for instance, one of my first purchases was a farmhouse, had multiple shops and five acres. So my strategy is that you get that stabilized, you get a rented, you get some cash flow, and then you can relax and then you can start looking for options. So what you can do for the property. So then every time I purchase a property, it's either I can hold it long term. I mean, I could potentially move into it. You can develop it or you can flip it. So you're talking about a farm. So is that you're leasing it to just one person or are you getting multiple streams out of that? That's one thing that I love about real estate is you have that creative factor where you can actually figure out different ways of operating in it. So this one in particular, you could rent the house in one of the shops. And then you could rent the second shop to a small business. So then it cash flows from the beginning. And then the strategy is to start looking at for that ground. You can decide on if you can do a full infill development or if you're just going to break it up into three or four parcels, what's most cost effective for that property. And every property is going to be unique. So that's the important thing I think about having like a stabilized asset, a home or a business, something with vacant land you can actually step back and really go through the entitlement process and decide how you're going to approach it to maximize your dollars and to be able to utilize the highest benefit. So the land, is this farmland? It is, but it's also zoned residential. So in the past, it was exactly in this particular instance where I learned how to operate within this. And it's been four years ago is when I first acquired this. You start looking at the highest and best use for it. So in this particular instance, I end up breaking up into six parcels. If I would have gone to seven, then it would have required sidewalks, 
street lights, hydrants, but by stopping at that six, I was able to do all those improvements. So the value is held in the ground and I didn't have to just spend it. So my development costs were way lower than if I would have gone that next step. So let's stick through this processing and because it's pretty cool. And I think of where, especially where we are in Green Bay, there's plenty of farmland and especially around town as town grows, this will resonate with people. So when you first bought it while you're going through this entitlement process, and we'll get back into that, were you leasing the farmland out so it was generating revenue during that time as farmland? Not yet. Not yet. It was vacant. So then it was just pretty much, you could use it for hay, but it was usually a trade. Hey, you mow it and you can take it. So that was just kind of stabilizing it. But to your point, absolutely, you can. If it's just bare land, which I do have, then you do have carrying costs. You're sitting on it. It's not generating any income other than if it's large enough to have a crop on it. In this situation, it was a matter of you could sell off each the different parcels. I like to sell on notes because when people buy ground, especially it's hard to get financing for it, especially for uh, blue collar families. And a lot of them aren't going to have the cash to be able to just write a check. So then you get them in with a reasonable down payment and you get them on a balloon schedule. So if your listeners aren't familiar, you can set up any creative financing you want. You can agree to any interest rate, any down payment, any amortization, whether you want to go 20, 25 years, 30 years to have lower payments, interest only. It's all based on it. And a balloon is when that payment is going to be due in full. So I always like to stagger out my balloon payments so that if since I can't 1031 exchange it, then my tax liability is going to be spread out over multiple years. So basically, you were buying it. And then initially, you had a house to rent, you had a shop to rent, the land wasn't big enough to rent. So it's bringing in some income right away. It's not just sitting there. And that was the concern if you had vacant land that wasn't farmable is you got the taxes and the mortgage or you've tied up a bunch of cash. So you're looking for properties that'll cash flow to some degree to at least, was it paying for itself at that time? Or were you actually making some profit on it before developing it? It's absolutely, it was cash flowing from the beginning. And the good thing about this is, and this is part of, I'd like to talk about middle housing, which is in the West Coast, Oregon and Washington in particular, since I'm from Ridgefield, Washington, they're right on the border. So I'm able to invest in Oregon and Washington in my backyard, so to speak. And middle housing rule, House Bill 2001 in Oregon, what it allows is, is that any residential lot, you can put a duplex, triplex, fourplex, or a cottage cluster development, which is cottage cluster is what we call an ADU or a DADU, which is a detached accessory dwelling unit. Or a tiny home, for lack of a better term. That's more, <laughs> people are okay. more comfortable with the tiny home concept. So that so, was part of your long term plan was that it was zoned residential. And so you could, yeah. the way things are set up where you're at, it was easy to get through the entitlement process of adding more housing density there. Correct. But still is an act of patience. I mean, this is one thing. You got to come in and be able to take a breath, which is there again, having a stabilized asset on that ground. So other properties I have, for instance, like an acre with a farmhouse and a shop, you see a real pattern here. <laughs> you get it, you stabilize it, you rent it, it cash flows. And then at that point, then you can start working through the entitlement and figuring, okay, is this 20 townhomes? 
is this going to be a cottage cluster development or do I just flip it to a builder and then roll it into the next asset? My strategy has been from the beginning is all working towards industrial flex buildings. And that's what my recent land purchase of 20 acres near the Interstate 5 corridor is ag property, but is zoned industrial and urban growth boundary. Okay. Um, so let's come back to that one. I want to still dig into this because I can see a couple of people I know who are like, wait, 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 tell me about this yeah, other exactly, thing still. Exactly. <laughs> so this entitlement process, because to a lot of people, this is kind of like the black magic of mm -hmm. going through this if they've never done it. When you started doing this, did you have a background in development and entitlement? No, I didn't. So okay. that's a great question. So I've done some construction, I've done work, but there again, it's a who, not how. You reference that book often, those books, Gap in the Gain and 10X is either in 2X or books you could build a curriculum on. But just the idea that you can go to planners, to builders, to engineers, and you can work with them and you can get the entitled. Civil engineer can figure out most likely what you can do. And then you can work with a local builder construction company and they can help you work through the entitlement. And then you just go sit down in front of the planners. And if you need to, you talk to local politicians as well and kind of find out where they want to go. But those are next level things. But there's always somebody, engineers are going to be an amazing resource. Local planners will be able to help facilitate that, kind of show you the ropes. And then you just spend a lot of time at the county or city hall. So it's the first step to engage the engineer or the first step to engage the city or the county? I will talk to an engineer quickly because okay. an engineer is going to be familiar. They're going to say, yeah, we did something similar. We did like-minded project. And this is how we did it. And this would be a good person. This is an architect. You can somebody deal with or somebody from the county or the city who is in favor of this kind of project. They're going to know the players because that's what they do. So they'll okay. lead you versus me going down there as Joe homeowner. They're not going to recognize that as much. Yeah. So that's the person, the civil engineer who will, they know the rules. If it's a local engineer, mm -hmm. they know the politicians, they know what the city wants to happen there versus doesn't want to happen there. Correct. So I think a good example to that is we were trying to get to start a little local meetup here. And one of the people who came once was on the city council for a small town outside of Green Bay. And we got talking about things they didn't want. And I heard this all around our area that the two pariahs of development are mobile home parks and self-storage. And I was like, how are you guys out there? Because it's a small farm town. I'm like, you know, I figured they didn't care. He's like, oh, no, no, no. We don't like those at all. And so... Knowing those things going in is a big difference where you said your community yeah. is this infill housing or accessory dwelling units. They really want that. Is that a big difference? It would seem like that if the city loves it, they're going to help you get there versus if it's not what they want, they're going to fight you and they're probably going to win. And it's amazing. You can go 30 feet one direction and 30 feet the other, and you're going to have a completely different approach whether it's a different municipality, a different county. And coming from working from a municipality, I understand sometimes things move very slow. I would say the one thing about like House Bill 2001 in Oregon, it was all jurisdictions were given timeline, July 1 of 22, that it was implemented, period. 
And they were given a warning that they had to create their own rules or the state rules were going to be put in effect. So everybody was scrambling. So first, this is a new process, a new zoning that everything is still evolving. We're on the front edge of this. This is only going to grow. So that's why this land is, I think, is going to be a great investment because it's not going anywhere. Pandora's box is open. The need is there, affordable housing. You may not be able to be the first one out of the gate, but it's a good investment. If somebody was looking at this and they didn't know where to start at all, would you look for land first or maybe talk to the engineer first and get an idea of really what you should be looking for? I would say if you say you want to, like if the surgeon wants to get involved, someone who's working a W-2 wants to get involved, buying like a stabilized asset, like a nice home on ground in an area that has pro-growth, that is having growth. And you can buy that and you can rent it and hands off. And at that point, then you can step back and say, okay, I've got three quarters of an acre. What can we do here? You're going to be able to put ADUs in there for sure. You may be able to put a fourplex and all those things that once you get it under contract, then you can go talk to an engineer, county and say, what can we do here under the new middle housing rules? And they'll be able to point you in that direction. If you have sewer and public water, then it's game on pretty much. The more so you're that, in like a, the city like Portland or somewhere like that, they're going to be very generous with their density as opposed to the county is they have to do it, but they'll be a little bit more restrictive. So if you've already got the, that's part of if there's already a house there, there's already water mm-hmm. and sewer onto the property. Mm-hmm. So it's less development cost, less stuff to get through to get the project up and running. Correct. And you don't have to just sit on it, just bare ground and you'd have something that you can rent out and you can use a short term rental, whatever strategy you want, but knowing that the value add, which is everything that I purchased is always the value add. What can we do in addition to make this more profitable? If there's an old barn in the back, you take out the barn and guess what? You've got four to 10 ADUs and a third of an acre. So. So when you start talking about the building and the construction, because in a lot of parts of the country, getting builders is the hard part. I was just thinking about that as you're, I mean, maybe these are all options that you're hiring the builder to finish a plan. You're partnering with the builder where they take an equity stake in it, or you sell it to a builder. Which one of those is your preferred route? As of now, I'm usually getting the land and title in it and then selling it and moving it, knowing that moving towards that direction, I'm leveraging the value of the ground, what it's becoming because of the higher density. So that is a means to generate increased value, considerable, I mean, up to 10x what you're doing, because you can buy that home with conventional financing. And then at that point, then you can do the development behind it as opposed to trying to buy just the ground and a lot higher interest rate on it and just sitting on a a non-producing asset. And so the entitlement process really is that you engage the engineer, they kind of line up what needs to be done from an infrastructure standpoint or how many houses you can put on it and put you in touch with the right people at the city to get that approved. Exactly. I mean, they'll be able to be a big part of that. Is the next step then you take it to the city for all the approval process? Is that building permits or is that zoning or is that just approving that you can build more units there? The good thing with those new rules and middle housing rules is it's not so much a zoning issue anymore for any residential lot. They can't say no. 
Okay. So then it just becomes a building permit. The one caveat I would say is with the tiny home cottage cluster development, which kind of I'll talk a little bit about is there's two approaches to that. You can build them with each with their own addresses. So you can sell them independently, or you can do a one common address and condoize them and have common utilities like a build to rent more like or a condo setting. But that's all. I mean, you can do that. You don't have to ask permission to do that. You just have to see how many you can put in it. You know, to kind of give an idea, like in one of the counties I'm working at, they call clusters. You can build four to nine homes in a cluster. You have 150 feet of common space, like green space in between them per unit and three foot to the sides, five to the back and 10 foot to the front. That's your separation. And those can be individually sold units that you can stick build. You could even bring in single white homes if you want, single white manufactured homes, if you so choose. When you say the tiny homes, there was a place when I lived in Wyoming that we used to stay at in Jackson, because it used to actually be affordable. It changed now, but Mm -hmm. it's called the Cowboy Village. So my kids still, whenever you go by someplace, they're like, oh, look, it's the Cowboy Village. And it was kind of like a little bigger than like your KOA campground where they have the little cottages. It was like a bedroom in back and then like an apartment in front, like a one bedroom efficiency apartment, but each one was freestanding. Is that part of, could be that, or it could be a little bigger with its whole new design or will they let you bring in uh, mobile homes? Is that all kind of fits within the whole thing? So they're having to give into their dislike of mobile homes to be okay to get more density. A hundred percent. I mean, there's just such a need for housing. There's one jurisdiction in Washington state. They're actually allowing tiny homes on wheels to be considered permanent housing. So could you imagine you buy that house and you could put, I mean, how many of those could you roll in and hook up to utilities and charge, you know, rent or sell them for that matter? We are on the front edge of something pretty dramatic in terms of what we're going to be looking at or what housing. Most homes in like Portland, Oregon, you can put two ADUs in the backyard. You can just put them back there. They're already permitted to do it. So that doesn't even take a bunch of entitlement. It's just already set. You can pull them in, drop them off and rent them. 100%. Even to the point where you may be able to actually sell them. Oh, wow. And then you can divvy up your lot. So they're really incentivizing people. They're saying, listen, we got this housing shortage and what's normally been going on hasn't been working to catch up so they're giving incentives for every person who owns a home or for somebody who wants to buy and then add some density to do this 100 percent. the one that i was mentioning is the challenges of the sdc's the system development charges which are often your for your schools your roads in the west coast and for utilities parks they all get a cut once you build a home in there. So if they're going to charge the same fees for a tiny home that they will for a $500,000 house, percentage-wise, it's very difficult to do. So these things are going to need to be ironed out as the process goes. So as the movement moves forward, then um, there's some challenges, but you just face them as you go. That's the creative part of real estate. How do you find solutions? Yeah. And it's the same thing for doctors that when you see a patient once in a while, it flows through, right? Like the book or in surgery, we always laugh that we're like, wow, that was the one case. It was just like, it was drawn up in the textbook. The anatomy was like, it was in netters where usually it's not at all. So 
every time is a problem. There's a general path and then there's working your way through the wrinkles. So this has been really cool because I think this is one of our first shows that we've talked more about this kind of from the development status. We had another one where we talked about SDUs, but I think this will really help people see how they can do some small scale stuff right in their community if that's something they're interested in. So we're going to wrap up this portion of the show and then we're going to be back with Michael and we're going to talk more about FlexSpace because I love FlexSpace too. And this is a jump from doing residential into the industrial world. So thanks for joining us today on Surgeon Syndicate and we'll see you next time. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.